chapter 10 uh, in your pew Bible. You can find that on page 558. 558. We'll read that shortly, but I want to give again a a welcome and uh, just remind everybody that uh, for the next two months, we will be starting worship service at 1030. So we are in the midst as a church uh, of a trial period where we're seeing what it's like to begin everything 30 minutes earlier. So Sunday school begins at 915 and our regular worship service, what we're doing now, starts at 1030. And uh, at the end of two months, we'll vote on whether to continue that or not. Uh, but at least for the next two months, um, yeah, 10.30 is the time to be here, and uh, it's good to see you all again this morning. Ecclesiastes chapter 10. Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench, so a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. A wise man's heart inclines him to the right but a fool's heart to the left. Even when the fool walks in the road, he lacks sense, and he says to everyone that he is a fool. If the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place, for calmness will lay great offense to rest. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, as it were, an error proceeding from the ruler. Folly is set in many high places, and the rich... Sit in a low place. I've seen slaves on horses and princes walking on the ground like slaves. He who digs a pit will fall into it, and a serpent will bite him. Who breaks through a wall, uh, he who quarries stone is hurt by them, and he who splits logs is endangered by them. If the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength, but wisdom helps one to succeed. If the serpent bites before it's charmed, there's no advantage to the charmer. The words of a wise man's mouth win him favor, but the lips of a fool consume him. The beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness, and, and the end of his talk is evil madness. A fool multiplies words, though no man knows what is to be. And who can tell him what will be after him? The toil of a fool wearies him, for he does not know the way to the city. Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child and your princes feast in the morning. Happy are you, O land, when your king is the son of the nobility and your princes feast at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. Through sloth the roof sinks in. And through indolence, the house leaks. Bread is made for laughter, and wine gladdens life, and money answers everything. Even in your thought, do not curse the king, nor in your bedroom curse the rich, for a bird of the air will carry your voice, or some winged creature tell the matter. This is God's living and active word. Let's ask him now to help us understand it, and apply it to our lives. Father, we thank you for this time. We pray, Lord, that you would, by your grace, make us to know, understand, and Lord, really to believe your word. Use it as a sharp, two-edged sword to convict us of sin. But Lord,
Lord even more so to encourage us in faithfulness so that we might behold the face of Jesus Christ, our good and wise and perfect Savior. We pray this in his precious name. Amen. Well, last week we uh, saw Solomon remind us of how crucial wisdom is in this fallen world. Three times at the end of chapter 9, and you can look there if you want to remind yourself, three times at the end of that chapter, he's reminded us that having wisdom is better. It's, it's better than power. Wisdom is better than loud, emotionally charged rhetoric. Wisdom is better than military might. In this fallen world, it is a good thing to have wisdom. But Solomon's overall point was that in this fallen world with all its frustrations, even wisdom cannot provide all the answers nor even help us gain ultimate control. No, as fallen people living in a, in a fallen world, even our best wisdom is just fallen wisdom. And that's how Solomon ended chapter 9. See that in your Bible, chapter 9, verse 18? Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner still destroys much good. In other words, in this fallen world, filled as it is with life's frustrations, even the smallest detail can frustrate our best and wisest plans. And what Solomon wants to do now, I think, is to unpack this truth. So, so chapter 10 is all about the details. Solomon is laying out for us the difference, the, the divergence between those who live wisely and then those who live as fools. And the difference between those two is the attention they pay to detail. The wise person is that man or that woman who gives their attention to even the smallest and seemingly inconsequential details in life. See how Solomon states this truth in verse 1? Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench. So a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. Wisdom here is being likened to a large container of precious perfume, an expensive ointment meant to bring beauty to the person who uses it. And that's what wisdom does too. It covers the wise man or woman in an ever-present aroma of beauty, notes of goodness, truth, and beauty exuding from the life of the wise person. But allow just one tiny little inconsequential fly into that perfume to creep in and to die and to become putrid, and it makes the perfume now rancid. It, it, it gives off a stench to whoever wears it. Well, so too will a man's wisdom turn putrid when even a tiny overlooked detail is allowed to go unchecked. In other words, the reputation of a man can become spoiled if foolishness, no matter how small, is allowed to fester. It's easier to ruin something, it's easier to spoil something than it is to build it up. Or to use chapter 9, verse 18 again, wisdom is better than weapons of war, but even one sin can destroy much good. I want us to think about that this morning. Not simply as individual Christians, but even as a church. There's a lot here we can learn, much wisdom that we can take to heart. And in this chapter, Solomon wants to show us how having wisdom in different areas of life, and specifically 
how paying attention to the details in different areas of life is absolutely essential. Solomon will show us the wisdom of paying attention to the details in how you walk in life. That's in verses 1 through 7. The details in how you walk. Secondly, he'll show us the wisdom of paying attention to details in how you work. The details in your work. That's verses 8 through 11. Thirdly, Solomon will show us the wisdom of paying attention to details in how you talk. The details of how you talk. That's verses 12 through 15. And then lastly, we'll see the wisdom of paying attention to details in leadership. That's verses 16 through 20. Four perspectives on wisdom. Let's begin here with the first. Paying attention to the details in how we walk. Look how Solomon sets this up for us. He shows us how we can tell the difference between a wise man and a fool. He says, a wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. Solomon is speaking here, I think, in moral terms. In other words, you can tell a wise man because his walk, his, his moral integrity is in step with what is right. Whereas a fool evidences his foolishness by always going astray, always doing the wrong thing. Everyone knows the fool, right? Look at verse 3. Because his life, his walk, it broadcasts his foolishness to everyone. He lacks sense. A hypocrite can hide behind uh, religion, hide his sin behind religion. A wicked and evil man can easily blend into normal society. But a fool simply lives life, and everyone sees the fool and says, yep, that guy's not wise. What's so striking is how Solomon tells us that it's the heart of a man that makes him to be either wise or a fool. See that in verse 2? The wise man's heart inclines him to the right, while the fool's heart leads him astray. A man's entire life, his name and his reputation, his legacy comes down to what a man does here and here in his heart. The wise man, in the heat of the moment, he stops, he considers, he waits, he listens, he watches and keeps his heart under control. Solomon's already talked about this back in chapter 2, I think chapter 2, verse 14, where he says that the wise man's eyes are always in his head. He's checking himself from the inside. He's considering his heart. But the fool, overcome as he is by the moment, overcome as he is by the passion of the moment, his heart reacts in an instant. Now, wisdom is, well, it's always concerned with how things play out, right? How an event will end. The root word behind the Hebrew word for wisdom is the word to see or to, to perceive. This is why we say someone who is wise, he has prudence. His eyes are in his head. He, he has thought through the end of his decisions. He sees in his mind's eye how something is going to play out. And that's exactly why a fool is a fool. His heart, always caught up in the moment, never thinks through his actions. He never thinks through how his decisions will play out. He just acts. He speaks before he thinks. He acts before he thinks. Or the fool is usually a hothead. And that's the example Solomon gives in verse 4. If the anger of the ruler rises against you, 
do not leave your place, for calmness will lay great offenses to rest. In other words, when your boss comes barreling down and gets in your face in the heat of rage, don't, as so many of us are being taught to do today, react and say, I don't deserve this, I'm out of here. Don't do the whole Jerry Maguire, who's coming with me? Rather, the wise man stays. He doesn't quit. He doesn't leave. No, he calmly considers the situation. Yeah, but, but you don't know my boss. You don't know the ruler I'm under. I mean, I, I work for a literal fool. That's why he's a hothead. Are you telling me that it, it wouldn't be wise for me to get out from under a fool of a boss? Look at what Solomon says in verses 5 through 7. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, as it were, an error proceeding from the ruler. Folly, yeah, is set in many high places. And the rich, those who ought to deserve honor, they sit in a low place. I've seen slaves on horses and princes walking on the ground like slaves. In other words, Solomon is saying, yes, in this topsy-turvy fallen world, there are foolish bosses. There are dishonorable rulers. There are people in leadership positions who are fools. But the answer isn't to respond to a fool by being a fool. Now consider wisdom, says Solomon. Verse 4, don't leave your place, for calmness will lay great offenses to rest. Solomon also writes in Proverbs 25, verse 15, that with patience a ruler may be persuaded. A soft tongue will break a bone. Do you see? Patience, prudence, and calm wisdom. In the heat of anger and passion, the wise man doesn't respond with a knee-jerk reaction. He's calm and, and slow and meticulous, and he thinks through the issue and how his response will play out after the fact. His name, Alistair Begg, I've heard give the example of the fool in the board meeting who his boss does something that he doesn't like and he gets up and he says, I'm out of here, this is horrible and this is ridiculous and I don't have to stand this and he, he rages out of the room and slams the door. And he gets down the hall and he realizes that he left the very expensive fountain pen that his wife got him for Christmas and so he has to go back into the room, sorry, sorry, I left my pen. And everyone's just staring at him awkwardly, and he walks out very quietly this time. And as he shuts the door behind him, all you hear is, fool, fool, fool. Just a knee-jerk reaction that puts you in a very foolish position. The fool responds to anger with more foolish anger. He acts before he thinks. And what was up until then, you know, a promising career, a place to support your family and help your kids with college well, is now in an instant gone and down the drain. That one small moment changes everything. Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench, and so too a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. So again, what we're seeing here is that in the walk of life, wisdom pays attention to the small details. Wisdom considers those tiny split-second moments where how you respond is crucial to what happens next. A lot is on the line in those moments. One small misstep, one word unwisely spoken, one comment made in anger, one response not thought through, and it can bring you to ruin. It can spoil your reputation and cause your name to carry a stench. Next, Solomon draws our attention to how we work. 
the wisdom of paying attention to details in our work. And here he reminds us that even if we don't have a foolish boss and our work is for all intents and purposes rather normal, well, we will still need wisdom. Wisdom to take care of and pay attention to the details of our work. Look there at verses 8 through 11. He who digs a pit will fall into it, and a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. He who quarries stones is hurt by them, and he who splits logs is endangered by them. If the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength, but wisdom helps one to succeed. If the serpent bites before it's charmed, there's no advantage to the charmer. It seems that what Solomon is laying out here is that in normal, regular jobs, there are always dangers present. If you're digging a pit, well, here's a risk. You very well could fall into that pit. If you're doing housework, a snake could be there to bite you. Every day there is very real risk. And all of life has inherent dangers. You can get hurt by doing all kinds of just mundane things. But the thing Solomon is telling us here is that the fool doesn't really give regard to these small but very real details. In verses 10 and 11, we see that it's the wise man who gives just that extra bit of attention so as to be prepared for the small details of normal, everyday work. A little thoughtfulness goes a long way. See what he says there? If the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength. But wisdom helps him to succeed. You know the quote from Abraham Lincoln, right? And perhaps this is where he got his idea that if he had eight hours in a day to chop down a tree, well, he'd spend six hours just sharpening his axe. It's the small attention to detail that goes a long way. Friends, that's wise. That's wisdom. The point being that if you lack wisdom, if you lack wise attention to detail, well, then you become like the dunce of a snake charmer in verse 11 who gets bit even before he gets a chance to show off his sweet snake-charming skills. Perhaps we could better translate it, foolishness always comes back to bite you in the butt. Solomon now turns his attention towards our speech, our talking, paying attention to the details of how we talk. We see in verses 12 through 15 that though the wise man speaks in such a way to win himself favor, the fool speaks in such a way to win himself ridicule and ruin. The wise use their words well, while the fool is marked by his misuse of words. His own words, the text says, actually consume him. He gets trapped and entangled in his own illogical speech. You see that there? The words of a wise man's mouth win him favor, but the, the lips of a fool consume him. The beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness, and the end of his talk is evil madness. A fool multiplies words, though no man knows what is to be, and who can tell him what will be after him? Now, the toil of a fool wearies him, for he doesn't even know the way to the city. You've seen this happen before, right? Verses 13 and 14 describe it so clearly. The beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness, and the end of his talk is evil madness. A fool multiplying his words... As soon as this guy opens his mouth, you can already tell he's off to a bad start. And the thing is, even he knows deep down that he doesn't know where he's going. The plane's taken off and there's no landing gear. And so what does he do? Well, not the wise thing. No, he just keeps on talking and talking 
and adding words after words and thinking out loud, trying to find his way back to some coherent point. But in the end, it, it just ends in madness. And, he, and he's built this mountain of useless words over him, the weight of which come tumbling down to crush and consume him. There's a fool. And here you are the whole time listening, and, and you're exhausted to what you've just listened to, and all you can do is say, okay. And the wise man knows when he doesn't have anything to really add to the conversation, surprise, surprise, he doesn't talk. He does this like incredible thing called listening. But the fool, usually only thinking about themselves, can't wait to unleash the sound of their own voice, talking assuredly about things that they have no idea about, things that no one knows. See verse 14? A fool multiplies words, though no man knows what is to be, and who can tell him what will be after him? Verse 20, Solomon gives us a little bit more wisdom about words. It says, even in your thoughts, do not curse the king, nor in your bedroom curse the rich. For a bird of the air will carry your voice, or some winged creature tell the matter. In other words, think very carefully before you say anything about the king or tweet anything about the president. Our modern cliche, a little birdie told me, uh, comes from this verse. And it very well may be the case that Twitter, perhaps based on this cliche, is therefore also based on this passage. Very ironic. But the point Solomon is getting at is what? Be careful what you say. Even in your thoughts, do not curse the king, nor in your bedroom curse the rich. For a bird of the air will carry your voice, or some winged creature tell the matter. J.R. Tolkien, in his Lord of the Rings saga, picks this up, and, and he makes crows to be the winged spies of evil King Sauron. And again, the point is that what you say, sometimes even in private, can travel. News of it will fly and spread and eventually come back to get you. Even one misplaced word, much like the dead fly in verse 1, can ruin a good life. Solomon now turns his focus to that area of life where the contrast between wisdom and foolishness is, I think, felt most acutely, and that of governing authorities. He makes this distinction between wise leadership, leadership which is blessing to people, and then the presence of foolish leadership, a leadership which is a curse to its people. Look at verses 16 and 17. Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child and your prince is feast in the morning. Happy are you, O land, when your king is the son of the nobility and your prince's feast at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. When he says, woe to you when your king is a child, he doesn't mean that a young person ought never to be in a position of authority. If that were the case, I shouldn't be a pastor. Now all he's saying is that it becomes a curse when someone that is in that position is childish, unfit, and immature. What ends up happening is that the leader begins to place people under him, the vice regents under his command, who, as verse 16 puts it, feast in the morning. They wake up and start eating and getting drunk as soon as the day begins. And there goes any responsible work at all. The foolishness which he's describing here is 
was that of a government or king who indulges himself on the basis of his own political position and power. A ruler who sees his own authority and power not as a means to serve and minister to people, but to do whatever he wants. We see this so often in right those far-off, corrupt, totalitarian governments where it's clear the people are suffering under selfishness and foolishness of a stupid leader. But think about how often it actually happens here where it becomes clear that a foolish leader cannot avoid the lure of fast women, easy drugs, or unaccounted for money and bribes. Woe to that nation characterized by sinful entertainment and lazy indulgence, especially in her leadership. Solomon works this principle out in verse 18. Through sloth, the roof sinks in, and through indolence, the house leaks. Be it our leaders charged with giving care to our national house, or to elders and deacons called to serve this house and this church, or even to individuals perhaps too foolish to give attention to those behind-the-scene details in their own homes. Laziness and procrastination, a mark of true foolishness, always leads to decay. Woe to that man who, who keeps putting things off until next week, says Solomon. Until finally next week comes around and his entire roof is sagging under the weight of neglect. Derek Kidner exclaims that the picture begins to emerge of a man who makes things needlessly difficult for himself by his own stupidity, by his own laziness. The fool never seems to get anywhere in life because he just doesn't want to get up. One application here, I think, is how this truth might work in our own congregation. Woe to any church whose leadership is characterized by lazy self-indulgence. Paul warned the church in Galatia that a little leaven would leaven the whole lump. I think that's really no different than what Solomon is stating here. A little dead fly, a little indolence, a little laziness, a little sin can ruin the whole batch. Within the church, God's people must deal with dead flies. And that means helping one another fight sin and get rid of those dead flies. That means at the very least, we've got to know one another and get close enough to one another to be able to help each other fight that sin. I think, and I have the sense that so many of us are afraid of coming off as judgmental when it comes to confronting sin. We don't like other people talking to us about our sin, and so we never engage our brothers and sisters in their sin. How hateful can we be? to let them just go on in it. And of course, if, if we're never engaged in getting to know each other well, if we're never like trying to do that hard work of fellowshipping and loving one another on a close and intimate way, then yes, any conversation about sin will come off as judgmental. That's the first conversation you want to have with me before we've ever had lunch or dinner. But it doesn't have to be like that at all. When you love your fellow brothers and sisters... And, and, and you've gotten into their lives, and, and you've cared for one another, and you've supported them when they've been hurting, prayed for them, uh, called them at 3 a.m. in the morning to just talk about life. Well, then the conversations about sin will fit in as love as well. 
Friends, may we never become a church where we've gotten good at hiding our dead flies and thus never engage in helping each other pay attention to even the small details of our hearts. Friends, as, as your pastor, please confront me, engage me, point out the flies flying around my head. I want them out of here too. I can't always see them, but you do. Help me, help each other. Solomon sets the laziness of foolish leaders now in contrast to the goodness of verse 19. Great verse, if there ever was one. Bread is made for laughter. Wine gladdens life. And money answers everything. Now, of course, some of you may instantly feel uncomfortable with such an unbiblical verse being found here in the Bible. Who put that there? But in reality, Solomon is showing us the wisdom of hard work and how the fruit of that wisdom, the effects of hard work, can actually help us better with the details of life. The truth is, brace for this, money is not a bad thing. A love of money and making an idol out of money, that is foolish and evil. But money in and of itself is good and a good gift from God. And Solomon is right. It answers everything. Where do you think the bread and the wine that Solomon wants us to enjoy, where does that come from? Money. Well, money doesn't buy happiness. Well, it kind of does. Have you ever seen anybody unhappy while riding a jet ski? Or walking into Disney World with the ticket that they bought with money? No. They're happy. Listen to Charles Bridges, a wise and godly pastor from the 1800s. He exclaims that someone who has money lacks nothing that this world can give. Money, he says, supplies a thousand advantages, not only in the necessities of life, but also in the conveniences, indulgences, and embellishments of life. Now, to be fair, Solomon has already made the point earlier in this book that money cannot do away with the vanity of life. The rich and the poor still die, and money does nothing to stop that reality. Nor can money bring real meaning to life. But he's never instructed us that therefore poverty is the way to go. There's no wisdom in pursuing poverty because with poverty comes a whole litany of problems that just add to the burdens of life. No, money answers those burdens. And this, from Solomon's point of view, is a blessing from God. It's the fruit of hard work. It's the fruit of wisdom. The wise give themselves to diligence and discipline and can therefore eat bread with laughter and drink wine that gladdens life. But the fool through sloth and laziness, has a house that leaks and no money to fix it. Are there miserable rich people? Of course. But there's also a whole lot of miserable poor people too. And if you had to choose between a life with some money and a life without, the choice in Ecclesiastes is obvious. Work hard, make money. Enough of that. In the end, the life of wisdom is a life committed to giving attention to details. Every dime and every nickel, every word spoken and every syllable, every jot and tittle. As Moses prays in Psalm 90, Lord, 
Teach us to number our days every day in order that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Paul commands us in Ephesians 5 to redeem the time and therefore take account of every second of every day, the details. The obvious question that hangs over our heads this morning, that comes glaringly out of this chapter is this. Am I wise or am I a fool? This chapter gives us the diagnostic tools to come close, I think, to an accurate answer. Do I look like the wise man here or more like the fool? I think if we're honest, I think we can all at least identify certain areas of our lives that looks like the foolishness described here. I know for myself, reading through this this week, uh, that there were reflections of my heart in each section. I have uh, been nervous to preach this because I see so much of myself in the actual text. And if we're honest enough, this passage will expose the ways. We allow a little foolishness here or a little sin there into our lives. It exposes the way we live foolishly. And even if we do live wisely, if we really do have wisdom, praise God. But, but who of us can say with absolute confidence that there are no dead flies in my life, no little issues at all stinking things up? And friends, thanks be to God that he has sent his son to save fools like you and me. And even the best of us, the wisest folks in here, need the purifying and atoning blood of Jesus Christ. Now, God did not choose the wise of this world, but the foolish. God chose what is weak in this world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in this world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Oh, may we not leave this chapter boasting before men and God because of our wisdom. You see, accepting and believing the gospel means first accepting who you are as a sinner, a.k.a. as a fool. There's no room to boast before God that, or that you've got it all figured out. Really? All of it? Like every detail is under your omniscient, wise control? Now be honest about yourself and own the areas of your life where you live and act and speak foolishly. And then repent and go to Jesus. Now the good news of the gospel is that God saves fools. He's willing and loves to make fools his sons and daughters, bringing them out of foolishness and into the light and wisdom of Jesus Christ. What I find so striking about this chapter is the way in which Solomon clues us into the problem as well as to the answer. He shows us the problem by incorporating, weaving into this chapter, three little animals, three tiny little creatures. Can you spot them? the dead flies, there's the snakes, and at the very end, there's the birds. And we see, don't we, how each small creature brings about and causes a far bigger consequence? Solomon is showing us, right, that the small details we foolishly overlook can have a really big effect. But it's also interesting to me that Solomon also seems pretty intent in this chapter on highlighting the all-too-common experience of kings. Kings who ought to be wise, but who are actually quite foolish. Three times in this chapter, 
we see Solomon bring up this, this ruler. And each time he's described as a, a fool. He's someone who hasn't paid attention to the details. And so here's, here's King Solomon himself, almost admitting, I'm the wisest man to have ever lived, a wise king if there ever was one. And I'm telling you, even I can't get all the details right. It's as if Solomon is still holding out for a better king, a, a wiser man than he who can rule with perfect wisdom and bring complete peace and blessing to his people. And now, of course, we, we see that Solomon's longing gets fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. He, a better Solomon, a better king, the wisdom of God incarnate. Not one detail of his life was overlooked. Every thought, every word, and every deed, all of it was submitted perfectly to wisdom. Every word spoken honored the Father. Every detail of his heart given over to fearing God in wisdom. Friends, here is a king, Jesus Christ, who walked in wisdom, and he did so among the fools. He mingled with the fools. He ate bread and drank wine with fools. He loved fools. He was a king who gave his life for and died for fools so that in him we might now become wise. Friends, will you give up your foolishness and live in wisdom? Well, then follow wisdom himself, Jesus Christ our Savior. Let his words and the good news of his gospel lead you. Believe in him, and by faith become one with him, and partake of his wisdom. He offers it to us now freely, and I pray that we would follow. Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank you.